You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Transformers and Mad Max get a reboot on the Fury Road. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to take a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. When we'll have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, a Transformer of some sort. There are like 15 different factions in these movies, so I could be part of any one of them. Who knows? Yeah, and I'm Adam Thomas, and we're not here to save your daughter. You're here to save my girlfriend, because that's smart writing. Yes, very smart, very smart. But Adam, we have uh, another person joining here today. We have a great guest who um, I've been a fan of his writing for a while and his podcast work, various projects he's done, and he's driving down here on the Fury Road with uh, all the Warboy attire. You can't see it, folks, but it's lovely. It's Mr. Drew McWeeny. Drew, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am shiny and chrome, gentlemen. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, th- thank you so much for coming on. Like, I've been such a big fan of yours for a while. In fact, it's interesting, the first time I saw any non-trailer footage of uh, the second movie we were talking about, Mad Max Fury Road, was at a South by Southwest screening of The Road Warrior that you hosted with Mr. George Oh, wow, Miller. wow. Yeah. That was an amazing screening. Yes. Genuinely one of the highlights of, uh, I think, any Q&A moderation I've ever done. Uh, Dr. Miller could not have been more charming, huh? Yes, exactly. Yes, it, was, it was phenomenal seeing that movie in 35mm and even that clip. It was just like the tantalizing little appetizer before we eventually got that movie, which we'll talk about in a bit more detail here. But uh, Drew, you graciously decided to come on, and like we do with most guests, we uh, give them a list of topics that we're doing, and uh, you decided to come on for reboots today, which we're doing... Around at least one of many different releases Ghostbusters Afterlife was going to have. It's coming out in two weeks now, as of this recording. Why did reboots attract you so much as a subject? I think it's one of the defining things about our particular cinema age. And, you know, you are a critic of what you are given. You you don't get to pick the age that you are a film critic in. And so here we are. This is the age of IP, the age of hype, the age of more. And I feel like reboots and and requels and side requels and sidequels and backquels and forequels and whatever they are, they're just insane. It's an insane business now of figuring out how to get all of the meat off of the buffalo. And it's just it's a it's a very weird time for our industry. So I thought it's a good topic. And uh, certainly uh, the two that you came up with, I think, embody a lot of what we can say about this age. Yes, and what do you think makes a good reboot, though, in an age where, like, we're going to get all these, like, IPs that are going to be revamped in some way? What do you think makes a good example of, like, reinventing the franchise while still staying close to it? Courage. I think you have to be willing to uh, genuinely find something new to say and not just find an excuse to do the same thing in a different uh, kind of wrapping paper. Uh, And I think audiences are, look, they know what they're buying. And so they know that, Six times out of 10 right now, they are going to be as cynical and as phony and as 
built from the studio level down as they can possibly be as movies. But what's wonderful is when you get that one that is clearly an act of either mad genius where somebody just went, I have this idea and it's insane, but let's try it. Or somebody just honestly has such affection for and deep understanding of something that when they pick it up and run with it, they add something to it and they make it new or better or different in some way. Yeah, I would say I generally agree with that kind of sentiment that it really requires somebody who either really loves the property they're kind of rebooting or at the very least has a radical new take on it that maybe isn't so precious about it. You can't really have someone who's kind of wishy-washy in the middle of that. The thing is, it, it, as we all know, it's a tricky thing, especially like Drew said with modern going movie audiences. A lot of time it is simply the IP that sells the t- ticket. I like the idea of someone taking maybe an existing property or an existing franchise or an ex- you know an older film or a TV series even and yeah just breathing new life into it whether that's something as simple as you know a gender swap or setting or something just trying something new to to sort of pay homage to the original but also make it their own and make it something new for for future audiences going forward where it's not just stale rehash of the same fucking thing over and over <laughs> transformers <laughs> um Amen. it's just you, you gotta do something new man well yeah i mean it also i think has a lot to do with like you don't want to necessarily go too far in reinventing something like my biggest worry about ghostbusters afterlife really is that we're turning something that was kind of like a fun blue collar story about like a bunch of schlubs who came into something magical on their own by accident into like this thing we're mythologizing into like oh we're we're in the midwest now but all of a sudden ghostbusters are this big magical nostalgic thing it becomes more about like this is what we think of the property overall as opposed to like what kind of works for the thing can i tell you i haven't seen the movie yet but i am deeply deeply freaked out that it is two weeks from not even two weeks from theaters a week and a day away from being in theaters and i haven't laughed one time at one trailer that's crazy to me. To me, that makes no sense. Isn't this Ghostbusters? Are you saying a sequel to a movie that involved like Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and a bunch of funny people from the 80s is supposed to be funny, Drew? That's silly. As con artist garbage men? Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I completely agree. And the thing is, say what you will about the other reboot from a couple years ago. There was a couple funny moments. I mean, it also helps that all of the women in it were just insanely talented, funny people. But at least there was something. That's even what I was alluding to. At least, you know, if failure or not, at least they tried something new with it. Where this one, like you said, Thomas, it almost feels like we're celebrating the movie and the IP than just trying to tell a new story with it. Well, as we mentioned, we haven't seen it yet. We'll judge that at some other yeah. point in the near future, I guess. But we're here to talk about two specific films that, if you're new, every week, Adam and I pick um, a random good and bad pick based around the topic. Uh, and uh, last time... We ended up choosing uh, the bad pick, which was Transformers Age of Extinction, uh, which was Adam's choice. And then uh, my good choice, which was Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started then, though, with uh, Transformers Age of Extinction. Bring it up. All the way. You guys have never seen a truck like this before. Dad, you can't keep spending money on junk. I don't think it's a truck at all. I think we just found a Transformer. I'm gonna ask you this once. Where is Optimus Prime? After all we have done, humans are hunting us. 
Gauthier, we are all targets now. What is that? We need a new army. And so uh, Transformers Age of Extinction uh, came out June 27, 2014 from Michael Bay. And this is the fourth film he had made in this franchise. And it is kind of a sequel to the other three movies he had previously made. But this is definitely still a reboot in the way of what most would call a soft reboot. Where they carry over a few things like some of the events are referenced. Like the Chicago thing that happened at the end of the third movie. And like Peter Cullen's back is... Optimus Prime, Bumblebee is back. It's like those designs are still back. But we're mainly following a bunch of new human protagonists, and it's kind of trying to be a clean slate, um, but it's still the same slate that's kind of dirty in the Michael Bay way of dirt on the lens. It's, it, it isn't really that huge of a change, despite having huge changes at the same time. Not for nothing, but I just can't buy Mark Wahlberg as like a genius inventor. I just can't do it. I don't know, man. It's like when he was the science teacher in The Happening. It's just like, what is that? What? Come on. It's and, Denise and Richards is- in World is Not Enough. Yeah, it's that It's that exact same thing where the casting is so insane that you go, is that, is Michael Bay kidding? Is that like his sense of humor that I'm going to cast Mark Wahlberg and he's going to be an inventor? Or is he serious? Because either way, it's hilarious. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, I'll give you that. And also, his name, Cade Yeager. Oh, my like, God. Like, it sounds, he sounds oh. like a Gears of War character. Like, <laughs> what the fuck kind of name is this? I just, the the, the problem with this movie is, A, the, the, the writing is awful. The dialogue is some of the worst. I mean, it is, that line I did in the opening of the show is in this movie, and it's fucking ridiculous. But... You should have a genuine sort of connection where it's a father and his daughter and sort of the new boyfriend and stuff like that. And you should really care and hope that they all kind of make it. And yet the whole movie, I'm like, oh, just kill them all. Like, just get, just, oh, I get why these movies are successful. <laughs> I, I, I do get it. It's, it's action porn, basically, you know, big explosions, crazy robots and everything. But now we're at the point we're watching this one. I can't even tell what's going on in the big action moments because of the use of the over polished effects and sort of this new technology. They invented this to advertise the pill by beats by Dre, but it's just, you can't even see the action anymore. Like the, the fun stuff that you should see it's, I can't even, my eyes cannot just distinguish what is what, what is happening. It's painful to watch, especially at damn near three hours. I, and honestly, this is all about maximalism. Both of these movies are maximalist movies, but they are maximalist. One is made by an insane person, and one is made by this dark wizard who manages to summon thunder every time he gets on a film set. And looking at the way each of them employs the absolute most resources you can possibly lay hands on is a real lesson in who they are as filmmakers. Michael Bay, this his movie is a buffet plate packed by a madman who like goes up to the buffet and at the first thing fills two plates and then keeps going back to fill more plates. And this is nine different movies and they all play out at full length. And one of them happens to be about the age of consent laws in Texas because he's a crazy person. And the structure is 
truly deranged. Your bad guy for this movie is Stanley Tucci, and I clocked it today. It's an hour into the film before Stanley Tucci appears on screen, which is crazy. But I will say this, Jack Raynor punches a cop in the face with his car when he makes his entrance. So that shit happens and you can't take that away from this movie. No, that's true. I, I, I think the, the, the buffet description is kind of perfect for, for Bay in general, who we've talked about previously with like Pain and Game, which was his movie he did prior to this in between his Transformers movies. And that movie, we kind of talked about how it was kind of like him being his full on sort of Coen Brothers cynical comedy. And that movie's fascinating for that. And I think this at the same time is like him having to, okay, I'm going to do the one for them, one for me thing. And I'm going to do another Transformers movie. But every time he does a Transformers movie, it's like you mentioned, so many different movies. At least half of the various movies this is are also for him. <laughs> because it's him managing to do such weird, cynical, crazy bullshit at every turn in the middle of what should be like a kid's movie. Just like it's about a bunch of fucking Transforming robots. This is that moment where they decided to move to the writer's room, man. And they were right. going to have a writer's room with like nine different people in it. And they brought in all these heavy hitter A-list guys. And this is what they came up with. That's what's really amazing is this is a brain trust of Hollywood's highest paid writers sitting in a room laying groundwork for 15 movies no one's ever going to make. The most amazing thing about this movie is in the middle of a Transformers film. Which, by the way, these are so violent. If this was human beings doing to each other what they do to the robots in this movie, just that first scene with the green robot getting pulled to pieces by Titus Welliver and his team would be NC-17 and unreleasable in most countries. But they're robots, so, you know, it's okay. It's for kids. What I find truly insane about this film is in the middle, you have this other character, this brand new robot, who brings with him... 500 pounds of mythology that he wants to lay down. Uh, there are these creators, and they made you, and they're this whole other species, and did you think you came from... You weren't born. Here's all this new backstory that we've never mentioned before, and hopefully it's going to now lead into 50 other movies. That's probably 40 minutes of shoe leather they lay down in this film. That's literally three hours long. That's unreal to me. Unreal and unconscionable. I see the writing room for this being like the Key and Peele sketch, where Jordan Peele walks in and lets every writer pitch an idea for Gremlins 2. He's like, you beautiful bastard, it's in the movie. And that's kind of what this feels like. It was nine guys with nine separate ways to make the fourth Transformers movie, and they just went, fuck it, we'll use it all. And they're all just standing around the desk from Alp from the end of Scarface, the <laughs> giant yeah. mountain of cocaine. I want to tell you guys a story about when I met Michael Bay, because I think it really says it all. And I've never told this story in public before, but it's truly an insane story. When I met Michael Bay, I had already been writing about him for a while, and I had referred to him as the devil several times. And he was very upset with me and very determined he was going to change my mind, which to me is hilarious. Who gives a shit what I think? That's crazy. You're a crazy person. Who cares? But he did. And it was very upsetting to him that I thought he was the devil. So he was getting ready to make Pearl Harbor the movie that was going to change everything for him and prove that he was a real filmmaker. And he had already long since won over Harry Knowles, who I was working for at the time. He asked us to come to his offices in Santa Monica, and he was going to show us stuff from Pearl Harbor that was going to prove to me that he was a real filmmaker and that I didn't know what I was talking about. That's crazy. 
think about that. Think about the fact that in the middle of the production on a $200 million film, he just really, really needed to prove it to me. So we go to Santa Monica, and these are when his offices are directly next door to the Playboy Photography Studio. And it's set up so if you're in his waiting room, you have to watch everybody walking in and out of the photography studio, which feels like the biggest Michael Bay power move I've ever seen. Until the actual Michael Bay power move. Every seat that he put me in the entire time I was there was about a foot off the ground. So I had to like drop into it and I'm sitting super, super low to the ground and almost hunched over. And Michael Bay wore the tightest blue jeans you have ever seen in your life that were essentially spray painted onto him and stood so that he was directly at crotch level with me the entire time we spoke. It was the craziest power move I have ever seen a human being make to another human being. And it was so intentional that the other person who was with Harry and I started laughing at one point, which totally diffused it and made it so that it was not a power move. It was just weird. We're standing in an office and he repeatedly keeps standing with his crotch in my face. And then he showed us the bomb shot from Pearl Harbor and was like, here it is. This is the proof. And showed it to me. And all I could say was, well, that was really cool. But was Pearl Harbor cool? I don't really get the point. So never really became friendly. And then I went to Hong Kong for this movie to do the press for this film. And had a conversation with him over this movie about how he had, had finally found the thing that to me seemed perfect. A series of movies that has nothing to do with human behavior whatsoever and is just nonstop carnage and mayhem. To me, these feel like at least we had him roped off and doing no harm anywhere else for like eight solid years. Wow, that's that's an amazing story. But it, it makes so much sense because like Michael Bay is one of those figures that like so many people were writing about for years. Like he was sort of like an internet punching bag at a certain point, especially with these movies because of the intense sort of nostalgia about Transformers, which I mean, I get because these movies are terrible to a lot of extent, even like. Is at the most like the first one is like kind of watchable and fine. At least the first one understands it's just a boy in his car is the movie, and right. there's not he doesn't screw that up too badly. When you get to this point where it's this is the longest one, it's like two hours forty five minutes, and it's it's like we mentioned there's so many different weird contrivances, like that whole sequence that takes place where like they're on like the um sort of like tightrope between the two buildings, like that whole sequence is like 20 minutes long and it doesn't need to be in the movie mm -hmm. at all because you can cut that out and everyone's in the same exact goddamn place story-wise there's a space zoo <laughs> think of how much money this space zoo costs <laughs> and how little yeah. it accomplishes or adds to anything I, I don't remember the robot's name but the bad guy robot who's chasing optimus prime the bounty hunter when he is sitting in the control room of his ship and he's trying to take off and he's got his big robot dogs with him that it makes me cackle out loud because that was that was like a month of conversations with Michael Bay about all right so what's the control room look like what do his robot dogs look like that's so insane it's such an insane digression that has nothing to do with anything. Right, even this movie like starts off with like the, the complete destruction and extinction of the dinosaurs by the Transformers, and then like they go back to it like two hours later. It's like, oh right, that's how this movie started. An entire species going extinct. <laughs> I forgot. I think the next one actually is a little crazier. Where doesn't one of the robots pull Excalibur out of the stone or something oh, insane yes, like yes. that? Yeah. It's that yeah. crazy. The next time. 
uh, excuse me, his name is Lockdown, sir, the Matt Robot. <laughs> but um, it's, no, it, it, just the idea of like, well, his face turns into a gun. All right. Can we see the same gun, but make it real big and real small at any given moment? Mm-hmm. Like every time he does it, it's a different size. It looks completely different, the mechanics of it. The thing is, this guy's supposed to be this badass bounty hunter that works for the creator of the Transformers and also Kelsey Grammer. But so <laughs> <laughs> and Mark Wahlberg is taking him down with a sword gun. How the fuck is this guy beating any of these Transformers is Mark Wahlberg with a sword gun if taking his knees out? They want him to be this credible threat. Like they give him the real cool scene where he's walking down the highway and the ship's behind him and he just shot Optimus and all this. And it's like the music's booming and swelling and it's, you know, you're supposed to be like intimidated by this guy and blah, blah, blah. But then he pulls up a ship to get Optimus up in it and they just use a rope net. You don't have like a tractor beam in that thing. You have an old school rope net and you morons take the car as well. <laughs> My my question for you is this: all of this, all of the robot stuff, robot war, you know, robot technology, Stanley Tucci trying to get the shape shifting robots, all of this. What does this have to do with Jack Raynor, aka Hot Seth Rogen, <laughs> and his insane relationship with Mark Wahlberg's daughter? And why is there actual stuff about consent laws in a giant Hollywood blockbuster played as a joke? Yep. That, well, there you go. You just said it. Ha ha. It's funny. And get it? Sometimes he has a really muddled Irish accent, so he's going to call him Lucky Charms the whole movie. Woohoo! Comedy. It's so insane. It's so insane. He has a laminated card in his wallet. Oh, my God. Just so he can explain it to people. Yeah. Uh, there's a move for you. That's somebody who's a, only a writer who would has had experience with that idea would have come up with that scene. There's a thing they run into in this movie that I think another major franchise ran into, and it's it feels like an inevitable problem. Franchises have so many baked-in problems. Part of it is the idea that you escalate as a franchise goes on, and it becomes impossible to top after a certain point. I think with The Terminator, you had the problem with the robot in the first movie is so persuasively terrifying. And then in the second film, they ran the smart variation on how to make him even a little scarier. That then from that point on, it's like, okay, so now it's um, a girl. And uh, now it's uh, now there's two of them. So they had to come up with variations and they eventually get to now it can just do anything. And it's like water, but it's a robot, but it can do anything and you can't blow it up. And it just keeps coming back together. And that franchise runs into that. And it's kind of not scary anymore because it can do anything and there's no real stakes to it. I don't, uh, you know, you just, uh, you know, at some point they're going to come up with a magical doodad that will end that. And this movie has the same problem. These, these transformers they've created now are so powerful and so ridiculous and can just reform after they're blown up that it's just weightless at that point. None of the action means anything once you start doing that. Yeah, and particularly with like all these Transformers movies, we have this problem where like after a certain point, you just grow numb to whatever's going on. Where even if like any of the special effects people or the production design, anybody who's like lower than Michael, but who's actually doing as much great work as they can, is trying to like portray all this stuff. Like you're you're so exhausted, you don't give a shit. Like I was about. I don't know, two hours into this movie and realized, oh, there's 45 fucking minutes left of this movie. I can't, I can't even yeah. stir up any kind of emotion about this. I'm just like, 
I'm so spent. I feel like I've been punched in the face for two hours. And the last two, the way I saw them, it was almost like they wanted to wear us down. They took us to Moscow for the one before, the Dark of the Moon, I think, that one. Mm-hmm. Took us to Moscow for that one. Took us to Hong Kong for this one. And in both cases, the travel is like 26 solid hours if you factor in the round trip. And we're there for long enough to see the movie, eat a meal, talk to some people and get on a plane and come home. Your body clock shatters when you do that. And you are just punchy and out of your mind. And they drop you into these IMAX theaters in another country and bombard you with this stuff for three solid hours and then throw you in front of the director and then fly you home. It's all just this incoherent blur. And I feel like that's by design because if they had done press where they just showed you the movie like normal – You'd have been able to say, well, that's crazy. You're crazy. This movie is crazy. They wiped us out, so we had no defenses left by the time they screened these for us. Yeah, especially when by this point, this is when he started doing the weird, like, aspect ratio changes, like, from shot to shot, which is even worse by last night. But, yeah, where it's just like, I'm going to experiment with doing as many different shots as I possibly can, as many different aspect ratios, and it gets to be even more grading on just, like, oh, a format level. You're going down to the nitty-gritty of the fucking format for individual shots just changes from time to time. And I saw this one in 3D, so it was really like being punched in the eye by Michael Bay for the entire duration. Which is what you wanted out of a cinematic experience. Isn't that what you wanted ever since you were a little boy? Was to be punched in the face constantly. <laughs> yeah. The only way it could be better is if it was 4DX. Like, <laughs> I just need 4DX, 3D, IMAX. And then I actually need Michael Bay to stand in front of me with his crotch at face level. So I feel like that would be the best way to see this movie. I started it last night. I'm like, because I know I'm going to forget it. I got an hour in and I'm like, I can't fucking do this tonight. I can't fucking. <laughs> I stopped it right when all the other Autobots got introduced because i'm like oh this is fucking dumb so i stopped it and then i i picked up my daughter today and i'm like okay uh, i gotta finish this movie and in total fairness she fucking had a blast with this movie whoa i did not see that coming i got a little more enjoyment out but she's six (laughs) so you know well and that's what some of this storytelling feels like it honestly feels like at this point just kids bashing action figures together and i feel like they must say it's at a certain point well isn't that what it is so does it really matter and as somebody who had to write about all these films you feel like a flaming idiot writing a plot synopsis for these movies you feel insane when you write and then they need to give them the seed and they're going to trade them a prime. And then when that happens, then they betray them. And Titus Welliver's CIA black ops. The, oh, my God. What am I writing? <laughs> like, you just feel crazy trying to describe them. Reading the Wikipedia summaries for these movies is fascinating because it just feels just like this is like weird stream of consciousness bullshit. It's like you mentioned it in that comparison of like, oh, it's like kids playing on a playground. Like a kid wouldn't have the fortitude to make all these different huge plot ideas that are going on in this fucking movie. It would be simple like the original like Michael Bay movie. That's what kind of works about the movie is that it's simple and grounded enough to where you have like these digressions that are bayish, but it doesn't feel like we're just having huge detours that take like 20 minutes. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant that this was the story being told by the kid who lived next door to Andy in Toy Story right. after he found his first meth. It's, that's what I meant. That's true. Very Sid-esque storytelling. It's from, yes. <laughs> that's, that's a fair point. And I mean, I think it's what we're talking about, we're like, I, I watched a lot of these movies again in a row here recently because I'd never seen um, this one or the next one. 
So I, I rewatched the, the first three and then watched these other two in the, like last week or so. And they all just kind of blur together in a way that's fascinating to where this is supposed to be a soft reboot, but it still feels at the same time like he's only doing it in as much as like he's casting new actors because it feels like Megan Fox and Shia LaBeouf were through with being involved with so many of these movies. So now he has to like get new people to try and like restart this franchise again, but still doing the same shit over and over again, and just even getting meaner. Like earlier on, there's a whole point where we didn't mention um, uh, TJ Miller's in this movie, unfortunately, but he also gets a death that is like horrific. That like if I was a small child, I would be terrified by a death that is literally a reaction to working with Bay. He was supposed to be in the whole film, right? And he and Bay had such a horrible, horrible working experience with Bay just screaming at him evidently the entire time, and T.J. Miller having zero idea how to react to that. That at a certain point, Bay just said, "Fine, you're dead," and just killed him out of the movie. I think T.J. Miller gets off light. Like it's yeah, he, he gets out and he is done, and he didn't have to go to Hong Kong, and I bet he was happy. Right. I think that's that's the thing. It's just like so many of these weird diversions that keep like happening here. Like there's a whole Transformers we haven't even mentioned like Ken Watanabe plays a samurai one and probably my favorite honestly <laughs> is John Goodman plays a Transformer who's just Walter Sobchak from Big Lebowski as mm-hmm. a Transformer mm-hmm. he's my favorite character of the whole movie because he has a cigar for some reason that's the size of a human being you listen Kate Hanger I can get you a toe you need a toe I can get you <laughs> basically it's just that's the kind of lunacy where like I'm fine with a big celebrity play like a random transformer who we've never seen before, but is Optimus's buddy from way back. Evidently, sure, of course we can go with that. But like that's just like if that was the only one of these like weird diversions, I'd be fine with it. As opposed to like we mentioned, it just it's stimulus overload. This whole movie to the point where by the end of it, like we mentioned, you are just tired. Like you said, it's just a cobbled together mess of nine to 15 different ideas and nobody really knows what to do. The TJ Miller thing comes out of nowhere. You know, Stanley Tucci's a good guy now, all of a sudden, because uh, he talks on the phone with Mark Wahlberg for five seconds. And, you know, not to get into the next movie too much, but uh, why is Stanley Tucci a drunk Merlin in the beginning? <laughs> like, what in the fuck? Like, was he contracted uh-huh. to do another movie? And they're like, ah, oh, I guess we'll do it like this. Yeah, maybe. Like, I, I would is. not be shocked if they actually had a sequel option on him, and that's how they burned him off. Which is, by the way, the most awesome idea. That's the best way to do it. <laughs> Please, just let me Renaissance fair it up, and I am out the door, man. <laughs> Fairly good point. I think that's the thing is, I would say like something like A Last Night is probably my favorite of these sequels because it goes for like these bizarre things. But I think it commits more to some of these bizarre bits. Like, there's a whole butler character that Anthony Hopkins is that's just like a crazy murder robot man who is voiced by a Downton Abbey guy. Shit like that that's at least a bit more fun. than like, this one just feels a lot more, like, mean and grating in a way that just, especially if we're trying to be a relaunch of this franchise, it just feels so much more, like, oppressive. Like, what do you think, like, this does wrong mainly as a reboot, Drew, compared to, like, what a soft reboot should even be where it kind of carries over some stuff? It's interesting because the soft reboot is such a strange idea, and we've only seen a few franchises pull it off where you kind of reboot, but you kind of don't. I think the most successful that I can think of is James Bond when they went from Brosnan to Craig and they kept Judy Dench, but they dumped everybody else. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the same M, but it's not the same M because he's a young spy. Who knows? But it worked and nobody gave a shit because they loved Judy Dench and they loved her chemistry with both of the guys and it worked. So you accept it. 
that's really the the trick is you just have to know which elements your audience really wants you to hold on to and which ones they're okay with you mixing up and you know sometimes in a in a case like this keeping peter cullen across the entire everything for as long as they possibly could and trying to keep peter cullen involved that makes sense for the people that grew up on it it meant nothing to me i don't care one way or another i all i care about when i'm watching a movie is how the actual movie works i have no nostalgia for transformers i was not a i was not a young enough kid when they came out i was already a teenager and to me it was like this annoying toy commercial that was on in the afternoon but i understand that there is a huge nostalgic affection for things and i see why they tried to carry some of that over and they tried to hold on to some of it and this is a case where nobody involved really loves this stuff. They're just trying to figure out what the fans love and pander to that. And that's a losing equation almost every time. The only time we've seen one of these movies made by somebody who actually seems to like Transformers was Bumblebee. And there's a very clear difference when you watch it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Adam, I know we've talked before that you're a fan of like the older Transformers stuff. So what do you think like these movies in particular, I guess this one doesn't really achieve that you liked about that, at least when you were younger? I mean... I'm not like a huge nostalgic fan for it. I liked it when I was younger. I liked the toys. You know, it, it hit me right at the right age. I mean, it's robots that turn into planes and shit. It's kind of cool. Uh, you know, it was fun to play with. Uh, the thing is, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Because I, I argue that the first one, like we talked about, really did work. I mean, there's some problematic points to it, but it's still a fun movie. And Bumblebee was super fun. I think that's the problem that's sort of missing out of these. Uh, it, there's no sense of fun to it anymore it's it's just become a formula like there's there's no whimsy that's earned you know the jokes that they try to tell in the, is they're just placeholder jokes that don't really work and they you could tell it's like a, just for a moment of levity and it's you should have more than a moment of levity in these transformers movies that are based on 80s toys for children you yeah. know, that's a, again, that's why Bumblebee worked so well because you know Haley Seinfeld had the the sort of relationship with the neighbor was really fun. Her relationship with her mother was fun. Uh, you know John Cena was fun. You know there's fun things in it. And the first one, you know Shia LaBeouf and his parents, super funny. John Turturro in the first one was still good, until the second one when it got ridiculous. But it's just there's nothing about it that says, hey, we're having a good time here, so you can too. It's become, like I said, just a formula of how to make these movies. They've literally become parodies of themselves at this point. Yeah, and I mean, particularly in this movie, we're like, we're carrying over the Peter Cullen Optimus Prime, but in this case, it is a hard and grizzled Optimus Prime who hates humanity and constantly says, uh, die. That's his catchphrase you would push the button for, just, oh, you, I will kill you, you'll die. <laughs> Great, that's what, that's what everyone wanted. It was just a fucking Optimus Prime that wants to kill everybody, and that's all he cares about. <laughs> I know. We'll help them get the seed. And then we will not help humans ever again. You're like, what the fuck? Like, this guy, this guy has mood swings. Yeah, <laughs> like, he's been through it, man. He's, he's been yeah, through it with people. Oh, yeah, he's over it now. This big, giant, killing robot who supposedly is the heart and soul of the franchise is really pissed. <laughs> heart and soul missing yeah. from that heart and soul for sure but uh you know we've been talking quite a while about this let's do some quick final thoughts and then get into our next feature here but first uh, drew any final remaining possible thoughts 
about Transformers Age of Extinction. I think it's it suffers from a total lack of interesting human beings in the movie. I think it is an insane length. I think it is so clear that this is what happens when you have a writer's room and they're just throwing everything at the wall. Nobody's making any strong choices. And I've actually, I've worked with Bay, as crazy as that sounds, and um, he needs somebody who is willing to make strong choices and push and try to challenge him on them, or you get this every time. Adam, your your final thoughts? I mean, it's uh, it's terrible. It's just a terrible. <laughs> it's it, it's it's just it's dumb, and it's sloppily written. And I agree with Drew. There's not a single sort of human character that you can get behind either loving them or hating them. They're all just sort of bland, bored, milk toast, fucking basic representations of different ethnicities and sort of corporate level and government, you know, scumbags. It's it's just it's just a lazy, lousy fucking bore fest of the movie when it really shouldn't be because it's filled with robot fights and explosions yet. I, it's just I want to sleep during this thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I generally agree. The only thing I'll pretty much add is just the fact that I would say it's almost the worst one. The only thing I would say is worse slightly is the second one, Revenge of the Fallen. If nothing else, because despite how loony this is, at least it did have writers that worked consistently on it. As opposed to Revenge of the Fallen was a big yeah. writer oh. strike movie. Oh, the big writer strike movie. Yeah. Yep. It is just like it is incomprehensible yeah. garbage, even more so than this one, which is saying a lot. Because this is also pretty incomprehensible garbage. Uh, but you know what? This one has John Goodman, Optimus Prime, you know, with a fucking cigar. There's that. <laughs> At least. What happens when you have a writer's strike and there are no writers working on a Transformers movie and they make the movie anyway with Michael Bay just jazz, just like free jazzing his way through? You get robots with balls. Yep. That's what happens. Yep. It happened. That indeed did happen. Uh, but before we get to another movie that happened, despite... All sorts of issues. Here is a promo for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. Hi everyone, it's Nathan, host of the 42Cast. Our second season is just underway, and it's never been a better time to check in on what we're doing. Whether it's talking about the latest movies from the MCU, watching the Arrowverse shows, talking about classics such as Star Trek and Doctor Who, playing 8-bit video games, or sharing celebrity interviews, the 42Cast has something for everyone. So give it a listen and discover why it's the ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. The 42Cast is a proud member of the ESO Network. And now let's jump into Mad Max Fury Road. My world is fire and blood. Everything is dependent on oil. We are killing for gasoline. The world is almost out of water. 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 Now there's the water wars. Here they come again. Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! So uh, Mad Max Fury Road uh, came out May 14th, 2015, 
from uh, George Miller, who had made the previous three Mad Maxes uh, 30 years prior to this one coming out in 2015. And Fury Road was one of the more infamous examples of, like, delayed productions because of so many different problems uh, that included, like, uh, you know, they tried to go to the locations in Africa around the time 9-11 hit, so production got canceled out of that. And, like, rainfall caused vegetation to grow over the deserts and stuff, so that also delayed production. And it was just, like, so much stuff that made this movie sort of one of those, like, big hills, like, oh, my God, is he ever going to do it? And can he do it after, like, doing Happy Feet and all this other, like, kids stuff? Can he go back to that? And um, this movie's like a modern miracle for showing that, especially in the modern studio system. It's it's an astonishing achievement. I 100% agree. I, it's funny, you brought up the screening, the uh, screening we did of Road Warrior in, uh, in South by Southwest that year, and... By that point, I had heard years worth of stories about this thing, starting when he just had the storyboards instead of a screenplay. Mm -hmm. And I heard from somebody who had seen the storyboards. This was probably six years before the film came out. And they described them to me, and they described them to me with such a sense of awe and absolute befuddlement as to how he expected to do the things that were in the boards. And they just, they were laughing. They were like, it's truly crazy what he's going to try and do, but he's like 60 something. Now he's like 70. There's no way he's going to pull this off. And then little by little, as they went through the ups and downs and they didn't get to shoot, then they finally did shoot. Then there were all the back and forth with Warner brothers. Every bit of buzz that I heard from inside Warner brothers was terrible. Except for one guy. There was one guy in marketing who just kept saying, everybody's wrong. Everybody's wrong. You don't know what he's doing. Everybody's wrong. And then very, very near the end, right before South by Southwest, he started getting really excited. He was like, everything I thought it was going to be, it's, it's happening. It's coming together. Wait until you see stuff. And I remember that feeling, the early bits of footage that you saw. And it was just the craziest like escalation of everything he'd done in Mad Max. And I started to get hopeful, but at the same time terrified because Road Warrior to me is very special. I, I hold that as one of the greatest action films ever made, period, by anybody anywhere. And it's because it's real. It's because they just went to the desert. And these crazy people just shot this lunacy, and it's remarkable. And I thought, I'm terrified he's going to ruin that legacy. The third film is a mixed bag for me, but it, it didn't ruin the legacy a bad film really would have this many years later. And I I remember the first screening of Fury Road. I remember being so happy by midpoint, by the middle of the movie, that I had tears in my eyes. I just couldn't believe what he did. And I still can't. I look at it now. It's one of the first 4K discs I bought when I upgraded to 4K. And I look at it now, and it blows my mind that he did this, that it's a physical thing they went and shot, that it's not... It's, it's not just CGI. There's no way human beings made this. No, yeah, and I remember at that screening, when even we saw the, the one clip that he showed from Fury Road, I'm like, this looks great. But at the same time, I do had that worry after seeing Road Warrior on a 35mm, like, especially, that has one of the most insane stunts with the guy who, like, flips on the car that wasn't planned. I love that guy. Yes. I, I love that guy, and I love the old behind-the-scenes film that they released on the uh, flip case... DVD for the road warrior where they have like, it's a 17 or 18 minute behind the scenes film from Australia, from the age when they actually released the film and they show the making of that stunt. 
And it's one of the funniest behind the scenes films you'll ever see because they repeatedly throughout the film, anytime they show the setup for a stunt, they tell you what's going to happen. It doesn't happen. And the narrator says something has gone terribly wrong. <laughs> and they, they do it like three times. And when they get to that stunt and they do that stunt and the guy goes end over end and he says something has gone terribly wrong. I remember seeing that theatrically at a Butnumathon where we showed that behind that making of film and the audience could not recover after that one because yes, something has gone terribly wrong. A man flew end over end at a camera and and yet that guy not only got up and walked away, but was the stunt supervisor on Fury Road. One of the things that when Miller told me on that stage at South by, I couldn't imagine. That's unreal. Of course he is. I would have made that guy stunt supervisor if he did that and walked away because he's obviously superhuman. Yeah. It's stunning, stunning work there. But uh, Adam, what about you? You're a fan of the original Mad Maxes, and were you kind of trepidatious similarly when Fury Road was coming out? I'm a huge, huge fan of the originals. My first, like, internet screen names and handles, like on AIM and MySpace and, you know, old message boards, was either one, the Ayatollah of Rock and Rolla, or Master Blaster. <laughs> I absolutely love the whole lore of Mad Max, the idea of it that he's not necessarily the main character. He's almost like a, a drifter who passes through and just gets involved in these horrible things. And then he's on to the next. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's just absolutely love the franchise grew up with it. My father loves it. I can't agree more that road warriors, one of, if not the greatest action movie ever made. Uh, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal film. I love everything about it. I actually constantly, do the Lord humongous voice to my daughter all the time. Like when she'll leave the room, I'll be like, just walk away. Um, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love it. And so when I saw the previews for Fury Road, the only thing I was nervous about was being able to accept someone else's Max because I was so yep. beholden to the originals. Yep. And not to discredit Tom Hardy, I think he's one of the greatest actors working today when he's really on. Um, so I was a little bit nervous about it, but everything else looked legit. Um, so when I went and saw it at the show, um, it was almost like a, for lack of a better term, almost like a religious experience to where I'm watching this and I'm dumbfounded that a movie like this can get made in today's times and still be perfect. George Miller has, especially with this universe, has such out there crazy ideas. I mean, rictus erectus, you know, what the fuck? But you, and, but it just works and you love it. I absolutely love this movie. I think, you know, where Road Warrior might be one of the greatest of all time, this is easily one of the greatest of the 2000s action movies. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It's, it's, everything about it's phenomenal. I love that, you know, it's the same guy who was toe cutter in the original back as Immortan Joe in this and just things like that. It's just, it's so great. God, and right. The same, the same way that, um, uh, uh, Oh God, um, I'm blanking on his name, but the, uh, gyro pilot, um, Bruce Spence uh, shows up. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. The yeah. same way Bruce Spence shows up as again, he shows up in, in, uh, Thunderdome and he's not the same character, but he's similar, he's but I love that. Uh, yeah but yeah i agree I, I love it and the thing is that's what that's why i love this movie so much um because it is a perfect reboot in the fact that a if you're a fan of the series 
there's so many little things in here that you can just, you know, whether it's the same actors or sort of stories that might be told, or even the fact that his leather jacket is still missing the sleeve that they cut off from the road warrior, you know, things like that. You just see these little things and you love it. But then for new people who've never seen one before, this is the exact type of movie to get new people in and a new audience and, and get them to go back and watch the old ones and then be excited about the upcoming, you know, Furiosa or if they make another one. I mm-hmm. just think this, if you're going to do a reboot, this is the way. This is the formula that you should follow. Well, and it helps that nobody has ever put their hands on this besides George Miller. And I, honestly, if he had never come back to it because of the death of Byron Kennedy, it would have made sense because it was very much a thing that belonged to the two of them. Sort of the way I, I feel like um, Gail Ann Hurd is such a huge part of The Terminator or Deborah Hill is such a huge part of Halloween. Mm-hmm. They're they're part of the reason that those things are special. It's not just the one person who was involved. And I feel like with George Miller, the first three Mad Max films came out of this very pure, very special creative place. And they were not studio gigs and they were his movies. And the idea that he spent all this time waiting. And when he finally came back, that he came back to something that was, again, his, purely and completely his. And that even though he spent Warner's money, the way he spent it and the way he structured the deal and the way he shot the film, they just had to go at a certain point, yeah, whatever, I don't know. I I have no idea what he's doing. Okay, we trust him, we think. And he just went and did it. He's remarkable to me. He has had the most amazing career to have made the films he's made to have had the success he's had and to have had as little outside influence or control in his work as he's had is very rare, especially among the eighties guys. No. Yeah. And especially at this particular time when like we were mentioned, this is not a year after like age of extinction where it's just like blockbuster culture is so inherent, like studio noted and all this other stuff. The fact that he was able to just like, I'm going to go out to middle of nowhere and shoot this in the desert and I'm going to end it together, and you're going to be fine with that. And everyone miraculously was, I think, because he still had the Happy Feet cachet, was probably a bit of it, was just being able to be like, look, I can make something weird, but I think you're going to at least get something of it, and it's a property that you that people are aware of, it could work. And I think it's so miraculous, especially because like it works so well as a reboot, because with this whole series, Max is like a fable character, who doesn't have to have a strict continuity. Exactly. So this could be just one other story told on the Fury Road. This series is different people telling you stories about Mad Max. So it's like you're following behind him. And each time you roll into a new town, somebody goes, hey, I was this crazy little kid with a metal boomerang. Let me tell Mm -hmm. you about this guy that came through here. And then you get to another town and it's, hey, we all lived in this plane. And then Mad, this guy came and he rescued us. And this is the story. So it's okay. The recasting makes sense to me because it's somebody else's story about Max. And they're telling you what they saw and who they ran into. So it's their version of him. Man, that works for me. And I think Miller set it up beautifully. I think the only other movies like this that I can imagine somebody having done this with would have been if Leone had made more Man With No Name movies without Eastwood, if he had found somebody who he genuinely was like, "I, I got it, I got another guy, I know who it should be. Like, not just to do it, but if there'd been another guy that he genuinely, passionately thought, I have a film to make, and that's the right guy. I think the man with no name could have survived it, and that would have just been somebody else telling you about that idea. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree with you. I, I think that's exactly, uh, inherently, 
why I think the Mad Max franchise is so special. There's nothing really like it. Um, not even just with the world building, but the way that it's told. The titular character, yeah, he's the main guy, but it's not about him really ever, other than the first one. It's about these other people that he just sort of, like I said, drifts into their lives, maybe helps them, maybe makes things better, maybe makes things worse, but then he's off to something else. He's almost like, a, 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 for again, I don't know how to properly word it, but he's almost like, like a disgraced samurai in these movies, where it reminds me of like the old sort of samurai films, like Lone Wolf and Cub and stuff, where he just gets involved in these different things that most of the time are way out of his league that he shouldn't be doing. Because that's the one thing you can also say about the Mad Max franchise. Max always gets his ass whooped. Like, he's never, like, the baddest motherfucker there. Like, there's always somebody stronger than him, better than him. It's just through sheer cunning and will that he manages to barely survive most of the time. And I think a lot of that also has to do with the fact that Max is mainly used in any of these movies as kind of, like, a person to guide us into a new corner of whatever dystopian sand like awful wastelands that we've seen in these movies and this is probably like honestly my favorite of like the other characters that he encounters obviously with like imperial furiosa and the wives and just that whole setup of like a morton joe and these people flying. like i when you talk about this movie in terms of its basic plot if you told me just the basic plot of like oh hey they go one way this way they realize that thing's not there and then they have to come back it's such a lame story on that basic level but in the process of actually watching it on a visual level where it's such a brilliant like scene-to-scene way of visual storytelling. It's incredible just how much you get to know about these characters and everything through such, like, limited amounts of dialogue and just the interactions that they have with, like, Max, where this is a movie about Max not becoming friends with these people, but learning to respect them and how they are better than him in certain areas and what he can do to help them at the same time, especially given how, like, inherently feminist this whole entire spot is that he's participating in. It's astonishing just how much he manages to, like, Miller is able to say so much about these characters and this situation and even just, like, modern gender politics within the perspective of, like, a really fucking badass action movie. (laughs) It's interesting because by putting these two films back to back, and we talked about the horrible writer's room process on Age of Extinction. You have like six or seven highly paid guys throwing 500 things at the table, and they throw it all into the movie, and characters are constantly giving exposition and trying to explain why you're watching all this nonsense. Like you said, Fury Road. I'm going to go here. I'm going to get this thing. I'm going to come back. And then I actually changed my mind, and I went somewhere else, and they chased me. That's the movie. That's it. That's all the storyline is. By keeping it that simple, he's allowed to then get as complicated as he wants with everything else. He can do the world building. He can do the action sequences that are 27 minutes long each. He can do all that because the simplicity of the storyline, you're not overwhelmed by what he's throwing at you. You can have one or the other. You can't have both. You can't make this insanely complicated storyline and mythology and everything else and then have action scenes where 400 moving parts are happening. You can't. One or the other. Pick a lane, man. That's what George Miller does so well. He knows that. It's the simplest framework possible, and it allows him to just sing opera full volume the entire time. Yeah, and especially with just the fact that we're able to do that and get, like, all these peaks into this world, but also, like you mentioned, like, never fully exposit. Like, there are so many great details, like, how all the war boys are praying to an altar of steering wheels, 
And it's like, we don't need a huge elaborate thing about, like, we worship the steering wheel god or whatever. It doesn't matter. That That's just, like, a really cool detail that gets you into <laughs> this universe. And progressively just get further and further down. Especially, like, you know, one of the best things about this movie, the Doof Warrior. With the giant oh. guitar that has the giant flaming sword on it and he's, like, on a huge stereo truck. Like, you don't need a full explanation about that character. It's just fucking cool, and it gives you a bit more context, but, like, this is the version of, like, the guys with drums in the Revolutionary War. Yeah, exactly. Like, man, this is a real gift that you either have or you don't. You can either flesh out these worlds in a way that they feel lived in and inhabited, and you actually believe that people have a life that begins and ends outside the frame of what you're looking at, and... That's what Miller does so well. I always believe that as crazy as the Mad Max world is, I buy it. Like I buy that there's a, a reason that it shook out this way. I buy that there's a political structure that has asserted itself. I buy that this is the way social behavior works. He understands people so innately that his world makes sense. You look at so many of the ripoffs of Mad Max and – they don't understand what he did or how or why it was. The world's become these insane metaphors that no one would actually live in. And I, that makes me crazy. I can't watch movies like the Divergent series where it's our world is a metaphor and no one moves. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. It, it, there's just, just something about the way he it, it, the lunacy of it all. But the fact that it all just sort of connects and you're willing to just go with it. It, it it's it's just masterful like tom said you know the praying to the steering wheel god i don't need to know why they're doing that and the doof yep. warrior and also why their end game is valhalla what mm -hmm. the fuck <laughs> just, a, just a perfect promise for all your guys hey whatever happens if you die if you blow up whatever hey man valhalla is there for you and that's yeah. what you want so kill the yourself idea, faster yeah. it's even better yeah but the, even just the fact that it's Valhalla, the yeah. you know the sort of Norwegian version of heaven, you know. Oh yeah, it's the, it's just the, the world is a garbage dump. Culture, whatever yeah. has survived of culture, it equally could have been Darth Vader. It could have been like it, whatever. It's just something that he remembered that stuck, and it was a great sounding name. Yeah, it's it's masterful in its execution in that to where, you know, you you get the idea that. You know, Morton Joe or maybe whoever was before him found an old book mm -hmm. and learned about Valhalla that way and then implemented it into his sort of his rule and, and forced this religion upon his subjects or whatever, even if you want to get that deep with it. But you don't have to. That's the thing. That's why it's so good. Like, I don't need the explanation. I'm just on board. They want to get to Valhalla and shiny and chrome. Yep, let's go. How great is Nicholas Holt in this movie? Oh, phenomenal. That's what I was about to say. It's like, Nux, I think, is, like, such a great example of how, like, you go into this and you just see, like, it's Nicholas Holt in, like, white makeup. Why should I give a shit? And by the end of the movie, you're, like, emotional. Just like, oh, he, they're witnessing him. It's beautiful. They've witnessed him. It's something that you didn't even fucking have any context for before this movie started. By the two-hour mark, you're crying. Yeah, dude, Nicholas Holt sold the movie in the trailer. The, oh, what a day. What a lovely day. People were like, what the fuck is this? Like, that sold this movie, his one line, to a lot of people. When they did the press day for this movie um, at Warner Brothers, they had two sound stages that they had set up with costumes and uh, some of the cars and everything else. And then they did the, they had it set up so you could go and do the video interviews and, and talk with the, the various cast in, in front of the props and things. And 
it was interesting because, like I said, Warner Brothers had zero faith in this film until really the very last second. And it wasn't until we started telling them what our reaction was that they started to believe it. And at that press day, I remember the conversations I had specifically with Nicholas Holt and with Charlize about how much I lost my mind. Like, not just I didn't like it. Like, I think it's a masterpiece. And both of them genuinely couldn't separate the experience out yet. And you could tell it was just starting to settle in that, wait, we might have done something here. We might have actually done something good. Like, it was remarkable to me that you don't know when you're in this movie. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know how it's going to cut. You don't know what his vision is, that it can be that punishing, that much of an endurance test that by the time you're finished, you're just convinced it's not going to work. It must be remarkable to sit in the theater the first time, like an out-of-body experience, and see this, this insane fever dream masterwork with you at the center of it. Yeah, and we haven't talked enough about Charlize in this movie and how astonishing she is. Like, someone who'd already proved herself as such a great actress, but then really fully cemented, like, oh no, I can also be such a badass action star. What is it the kids say? Understood the assignment? (laughs) That's right. Charlize understood the assignment. Indeed. Yes, Yes, she understood the assignment perfectly. Because Furious is one of those, another great example of, like, a character who, going into this, you're just like, oh, is Charlize Theron who's bald? Okay, I guess I'll see how this works. And by the end of it, you are so with her with how much she's had to gone through and how much she wants to go to the green place and realizing that's gone. That shot of her like in the sand screaming into the sky is like one of the great sort of like big tragic moments on paper. Once again, another dumb thing of just like, Oh, she's screaming into the sky. We've seen that a hundred times, but it works. Cause you were in the, you were in the middle of her with her in that sand, all this sand like piling up around yeah. her. It's such an incredible performance from her. That's the thing about the Furiosa character. Now I'm not a big fan of spinoffs. I'm really not. I think more often than not, they don't work. But when it was announced that they were going to do a spinoff about Furiosa, and especially when they announced who they cast, you know, with Anya Taylor-Joy and things, I was like, oh, I am 100% on board for this. I don't think anybody can disagree. She's basically the main character of the movie. She really is the oh, yeah. star of the, of the film. And it's such a compelling story. You know, it, it's one of those characters to where they don't really tell you much about her backstory in the movie and i think that's okay i i in the context of the film but there's so much that i want to know and it, it, that's very rare for me i usually like as little backstories as as necessary but for this one i'm fully on board i can't i'm like excited for furiosa very very much yeah my guess is that uh when we see her initially she's gonna have two arms so I'm I'm going to guess this is going to be one of those movies where some little piece of what we know about Furiosa is going to be built, baked into the thing. Normally, I would dread that. But honestly, George Miller has never steered me wrong inside this universe. And it's not something that anybody pressured him to do. Nobody made him do it. Nobody can make him do it. He wants to do it. I, I Okay. Yeah, whatever. You're, you, you, the, you are the man when it comes to this fictional universe. I'm in. Yeah, just the fact that he really wants to do it is immediately, like, I'm fully on board. I think that's the thing is, no matter whatever this dude wants to do to explore further reaches of this universe, I'm down for. Because, like we mentioned, we were so worried about him doing a fourth movie. And he pulls out something like this that's astonishing and really manages to make you care about not just Furious, but even, like, all the wives have own little individual arcs. Like They're all great. Yeah, they're all great. They're all great. Yes. 
And they, they all have distinctive looks, but also little arcs that make you, like, immediately attach onto them. Like, I love Zoe Kravitz. is probably my favorite of the names, Toast the Knowing. That's that's just mm. a fucking amazing <laughs> one of these names. Or, um, you know, like, Abby Lee as the dag. Immediately, so striking. That's the thing. He also, he casts people who half of the performance is just how they look. And he has such an impeccable eye. And this that movie is just wall-to-wall, one perfect image after another. It's the perfect mix of CG and actual stunts. It's the perfect mix of physical and practical effects. This was a rare case. My kids were 2014. Toshi would have been nine. Alan would have been six. My kids were too young for this movie. And I said, you know what? We're going to make a mistake. Because in the future, you were going to want to say, I saw Fury Road in a theater on the biggest screen I possibly could. It's an experience like when I was 10, 11, and I saw stuff like Excalibur or that kind of a film in the theater. They made a mark on me. And Fury Road was one of those experiences I really wanted the boys to have theatrically. And I I regret nothing. It's absolutely formative for both of them. They adore it. I think that's amazing. My dad did the same thing with me. Uh, believe it or not, he. I saw RoboCop in the theater. I was way yeah. too young, but I'll never forget it. I saw Terminator 2 in the theater. I was way too young. I'll never forget it. Total Recall in the theater. Way too young. But it's it's those moments that I remember with those type of movies that I would put on par with this movie. Yeah. This is a lightning bolt, and mm-hmm. I don't know if they'll ever get a chance to see this thing in the theater. I want them to have the, ex- the full experience. I want them to understand what it's like on the Fury Road when that chase is really happening or when you drive into the dust storm or when you like, I want them to feel that. And they love that movie. This is one of those rare movies in this day and age where I don't go to the theater multiple times to see the same movie over and over again. I knew I had to for this. I at least saw it two more times. Even like one of them at a cheap dollar theater didn't give a shit. Still looked great. Didn't care that this was the stickiest possible floor or whatever. It's still amazing on any screen. You're not alone. I saw it at the press screening first and then I, was offered the chance to host the screening of it. And when I announced the screening, I immediately got contacted by Edgar Wright, Patton Oswald, a whole bunch of people who had already seen the film who were like, can I come to your screening? I just need to see it again. I really need to see it again. And while it was in theaters, I saw it in IMAX. I saw it in a regular theater. I saw it on a Dolby Vision screen. I saw it at a drive-in. I, I went repeatedly. I just couldn't get enough of it. I would have kept going if it had just stayed in theaters longer. Yeah. The big thing that I love about this movie so much, even though I know Miller did like a the blood and chrome or whatever, black and chrome edition of this that was black and white. Mm-hmm. This movie is like my favorite use of color in a movie in ages. It feels like it's the oh, next yeah. evolution of like, I, I feel like I'm somebody who was watching the wizard of Oz for the first time watching this movie with the technicolor thing in that context. And here it's just like, it's like the next step of that. It's so astonishing. The use mm-hmm. of color in this movie. Particularly even like when they go into like the uh, the desert area that's like completely deserted and you got the people on stilts, the blue used for the night is astonishing. Yeah. Like, especially the shot oh, yeah. where like all the wives are like uh, crowded around like a little flame and they're yellow and Furiosa is in the foreground in blue. It's just like, it's, it's so beautiful looking. I could hang so many different frames from this movie as just a picture on my wall and it would look beautiful. It's just a piece of still art. Um, but we're, we've been talking quite a while about this movie. I guess before we get out of here, I want to emphasize that I think the finale of this movie is my favorite ending 
in a movie in quite some time. Like everything from pretty much like when they're about to go through that one area and they're going to like close off uh, with the rocks and everything mm-hmm. all the way to the very ending in a weird weird move where like he also wrote and produced Babe, uh, George Miller. And the ending of this weirdly has so many similarities to Babe <laughs> down to even like someone looking down at the other person. It's all like I'm waiting for someone to say that'll do Max. That'll do and everybody. Leaves. Mm-hmm. But it still hits that same emotional punch. And it's, like, one of the most gorgeous and, like, the Junkie XL score and the way it hits at that point. It's it's one of those things where, like, I, when I saw this, I'm like, I would love to see so many more George Miller Mad Max movies. But if it ends here, this is a beautiful, perfect end point that, like, you couldn't ask for a better one. Yeah, absolutely. If we never see Max again, that's the perfect goodbye. That is the, the best movie star farewell to that character I can imagine. Hardy plays him in such a way where he's, like, so almost like a child where he's so worried about things. Like, even the moment he says Max, I think he's like, my, my name is Max. He's just, like, shooing it off, basically. It's just something that he's trying to just, like, mm-hmm. get out like a nervous boy at prom, basically. I, I love the fact that, like, this character who we've seen go through so much shit also has this vulnerability. And you see that vulnerability all the way through to the ending, where he knows just, like, you know what? This isn't my moment. I'm going to get out of here. This is your moment. Yeah, and not, and not my place. And I, if I'm here, people are going to be hung up on the wrong thing. I won't help get anything done. Yep. Just a respectful nod. It's the perfect. It's like it's like you mentioned. It's the man with no name thing. Just disappears off into the crowd, and you never see him again. And the furious everybody's up on top of that pillar. It's it's so stellar. I don't want this to end any other way. I don't want Max to be on the elevator with them and sort of stick around and help them get the the sort of new society they're going to create running and everything. I, I think and it's, now it's, they are in love. <laughs> right? Oh, thank yes. God. Yes. Exactly. Thank God. No. Thank God. I love that it's. Max, you know, she looks down, she sees him, he turns back, does a little nod. But just the idea that it's this whole crowd is coming toward the camera and only Max is walking away from it. It's perfect in that aspect that exactly what we've been talking about. He just this legend character that shows up in these things and then disappears. And that's a perfect representation of it. This whole thing that he's been involved in now and sweat and blood and killed over and everything, his part of it is done. He's on his way. He got what he needed out of it. He's gone. And, you know, he is the cat, one of the catalysts to get this new society and this new sort of thing running, but he wants no part of it. And I think it's just, it's perfect. Well, um, on that note, I think we, We've exhausted so much about uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Let's go into quick final thoughts here. Drew, any final thoughts remaining about Mad Max Fury Road? Um, there were a lot of near misses for Miller. Uh, almost made a Justice League movie. His name has been connected to a few things. Um, I am so grateful that he held out, that he waited, and that he made this movie win and how he did. I have so much faith in him. And over the course of the release of this thing, I ended up, because of that South by Southwest experience, he had a really good time at that screening. And then I interviewed him when the film came out. I interviewed him twice at that point. And he ended up just having a good time. And so I moderated like eight different screenings of it for him where I did Q&As and spent a fair amount of time around him during that year. It was such a gift. And he turned out to be so much cooler than I could have hoped. Like everything you hope George Miller would be, he's more than that. As smart and as funny as you hope he is, he's more than that. As aware of the legacy of Mad Max as you hope he is, he's more than that. I think this is that rare case of a truly perfect reboot of something. And 
if you're not going to try to hit this bar, if you're not going to aim to do it this well, don't do it. Yeah, and that Shadow especially said, what I love about Miller is it's kind of like the Sam Raimi thing where you see these movies that he makes, like, oh, this guy must be an insane, crazy person. And you, when I saw Miller, like, for the first time, like, at that screening, it's he's just like, oh, he's like an adorable Australian grandfather with, like, little glasses, and he's got his bomber jacket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's so unassuming mm-hmm. that he would, like, this guy would make this crazy movie. Uh, but yeah, I, I can't agree enough with what you were saying there. I think um, this is definitely a great example of a reboot in terms of just like really getting you into a new version of this character um, that is similar as much as it can be admittingly because, you know, we didn't talk much, but there's a lot of reasons why we didn't have the same guy <laughs> involved, obviously, from the last three movies. Uh, but at, what? I, mm-hmm. I know it's a shocking, shocking. Uh, but at the same time, um, I'm astonished of like, like we mentioned with all the production delays and so much of like that doubt we have and the cynicism about, franchise reboots just like oh is he gonna ruin mad max it'll be a bummer and no he if anything even managed to improve it on what was already pretty goddamn great previously it's an astonishing achievement especially for like a big studio movie to have like such a clear vision and have so many great distinctive things like we didn't even talk about like the mothers of the earth uh, that uh, come along with them who are like these badass awesome old ladies oh my god the best oh so good <laughs> so great or just like the small details once again that expand this world in such a great way but also really invest you in this own individual story to where like like I said, you, you may know vague things, but like, oh, I know what Ma- Mad Max is in general. But then the moment like this movie starts to where it ends, you just sort of experience a whole new corner of the universe that you're so happy you saw for sure. Definitely. And Adam, your final thoughts. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is just a it's a perfect movie. It's a, in, in any way you want to look at it. If you want to look like an action film, you want to look like a continuation of a franchise. You want to look at it like a reboot of a franchise. I think down to every single frame it's it's expertly done it's there for a purpose none of it feels bloated none of it feels like a wasted film there's no part of this movie that doesn't feel like it was meticulously planned um and expertly crafted to sort of paraphrase a quote of the movie you know it's the fourth movie and it's perfect in every way it really is. There, there's nothing about this movie that I would change. This is one of those, like we said earlier, I, I, I feel lucky that I got to see it in the theater. And uh, and I think we're all lucky that it's still in the hands of George Miller. I, I just, I can't wait to see where we go next. Yes. And speaking of next, uh, we have a whole another segment that we're going to do here, which is what we do every week, the double redo, where um, to, you know, continue on with talking about the particular topic we're doing in this case reboots um adam myself and drew are each going to recommend um two good and two bad movies related to whatever topic uh, in this case reboots that we're doing so uh adam has two good reboots and two bad ones and i have the same drew has the same so adam you're going first uh, what are your recommendations for the double rid you okay so we'll start off with the good ones i have the 2018 halloween now, this is before I saw Halloween Kills and things like that, but I really, really enjoy that movie. I rewatched it um, right after Halloween Kills came out, and I think it's a damn near perfect reboot. There's only like one or two things I would change, uh, namely the Dr. Sartain character, I think is completely ridiculous and unnecessary. I think it's a really solid, fun horror movie. Like, it, it reminds me of, you know, the slasher movies of old, where I could. You know, I was in the theater and I was like excited and laughing and then, oh, shit, you know, jump scares and everything. It's just a really solid, solid. And then the other one I have 
was the third attempt at bringing the Punisher to the theater. It's the Ray Stevenson uh, starring Lexi Alexander directed Punisher Warzone. Now, it is a crazy movie. It is fucking nuts. Some of the decisions that are made in this movie as far as casting, accents, colors, everything. It's it's fucking wild. But if you want to watch a brutal Punisher movie, you don't get much more crazy violent than this. It's insanity on screen, and I love every second of it. Now, for my bad, I have the incredibly big-budgeted Borefest that was Men in Black International. Thomas and I have talked about the first Men in Black. I think it's a perfect blockbuster film. I love everything about it, especially Vincent D'Onofrio as Edgar. Uh, I, I think it's just a super, super solid, fun film. Second one's terrible. Third one's got some points in it that I like. And then this one, it, it felt like sort of beating a dead horse. It's unnecessary. You get a hot young cast. Hey, Thor Ragnarok was successful. Let's get the stars from that to be in this. Oh, and the guys who won World of Dance. Let's put them in this movie, too. It's just, it's lousy. It's boring it is so boring and the effects work i it's just it, it reminds me of almost like we talked about with transformers where it's so overly polished it looks super phony whereas in the first one you had a mix of practical and cg this one is all cg and it, you could tell it looks it just looks dull and then i have uh transporter refueled Starring Ed Screen or Scrine, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Who is a walking piece of drywall? I like that he's fine, <laughs> but he's so boring. And then this movie, also starring Ray Stevenson as his father, they try to like redo the Jason Statham one, which you know they, those are problematic movies. I think the first one's pretty great, but there's a couple scenes in it. But this one is just so bland and by the numbers, and it's clear that the lead of your action martial arts movie is not in any way a martial artist. Like the choreography is so bad and it's shot in a way to just really disguise that Ed Screen does not know how to fight and he probably learned it for this movie. And it just takes you out of it 100% because it's 100% unbelievable. And like I said, it's boring as well. And nobody gives a shit about being in this movie. Nobody knows what the fuck they're doing here. It looks bad. It sounds bad. The acting's bad. It's just, if you haven't seen it, really avoid it. There's no need. Yeah, I mean, I've avoided your two bad ones. Um, Men in Black, just because I've been burned too many times. I love that first one so much. And those two sequels, to varying degrees, really disappointed me. So I'm just like, I'm not bothering with International, despite a pretty solid cast there. And Transporter Refueled, uh, I've only seen the first two Transformers fairly recently. And I dig those movies, but I also don't get the point of like, why bother if it's not Statham? The whole appeal is it's Jason Statham being like a weird, fun driver character. That's what the whole point. Yeah, it's not a character. Right. <laughs> it's, it's Jason Statham's star persona. Um, and your two good ones I have seen, I agree with, I, I like Halloween 2018. I liked it a bit more rewatching it recently before Halloween Kills. Um, I think it's as good I think you possibly can get with a Halloween reboot, which is to say... It's been done so terribly so many times that whatever problems are here, it's just like, well, it's not as bad, I can definitely say. And I've recommended Warzone previously as a redo. I completely agree with that movie is insane. I think, quite frankly, the only way you can really do a Punisher reboot at this point 
is just to do like a weird silly movie because if you try and take it too seriously i think there's too much danger at this point with doing the punisher in a more serious context i really like punisher warzone um i think it is absolutely unrelentingly violent and if you're going to do punisher as the comic book punisher to me that feels like leaning into the verhoven side of it and that feels appropriate to me I don't think the Punisher is redeemable. I don't think the Punisher is a character who I need him to be PG-13 and warm and cuddly. I think that's actually a weird mistake, and it it makes it more morally ambiguous and more uncomfortable for me. I would rather see him be extreme and over-the-top and crazy so that it's very clear the filmmakers understand what they're making. I think that one's terrific. Uh, I am not as much a fan of the Halloween 2018, but I think in general I... I may be one of those people who I like Halloween, the first movie, and that's pretty much it. I don't really think that there was enough meat on that bone for the franchise. And so I just don't really get it anymore. I've, I've, I've had that experience and I'm not getting anything new, but I agree as if you're going to do it, I think that was probably as strong a shot as anybody's going to take. It's just wild that we've taken that same shot three or four times now. <laughs> True. Completely understandable. This is the sequel. Okay. No, th- this is the sequel. Like, Okay, I get it. <laughs> this is the sequel to the second one. No, this is the new second one. Fuck another second one. This is the second second one. <laughs> okay. okay. No, yeah, 100%. Um but I'll go ahead and briefly uh, bring up mine here. Um, I'll start off with the one that relates to one of the two movies we talked about here. We kind of mentioned it a bit, so I'll be brief. Uh, Bumblebee is one of my choices, which is by heads and tails the best of the modern Transformers movies. Because as we mentioned, this is simpler. It's a girl and her first car story. And it does it with a lot more affection than any of the other Transformers movies I managed to do. Haley Steinfeld's great. And Travis Knight who had previously done a bunch of great animated films for Laika, like particularly Kubo and the Two Strings, amongst other things, is a stellar director who transitions to live action so well with really fun action sequences and a really earnest heart that, like I said, is just missing from so many of those Transformers movies. And uh, this is the one to see. And hopefully, even though I know it didn't do as well at the box office, if they keep doing these Transformers movies, to keep in that lane, as opposed to the previous Bay lane that we have been in for too long. Um, And then the other good one I have is Dread, which we've talked about the Stallone infamous movie on the show previously, uh, which was um, not a great version of that character. And then the 2012 Dread, which was, I know, a huge disaster, despite that's another one I'm so glad I saw in the theater, in 3D in particular. It was easily like the best of those 3D movies that really took that format and did such a phenomenal job with it. It's it's one of the most uh, stellar theatrical experiences I've ever had in that case. And Carl Urban is phenomenal. And Lena Headey such a great villain. It's, it's definitely like, if you're going to see one of the Dread things, uh, this is the one to see for sure. And then uh, just my two bad um, are uh, Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit, which I hadn't seen the Jack Ryan movies until fairly recently. And there are more hits than misses in that, particularly even Some of All Fears, I would say, is a solid reboot in its own right. That yeah. doesn't get enough credit. Yeah. Um, but then Shadow Recruit is about as boilerplate, cookie-cutter, bad spy <laughs> movies you can get right now. <laughs> and it's so dull. And there's such a great cast. Chris Pine isn't a bad choice uh, to play the Jack Ryan role. And uh, Kenneth Branagh, I think, would be an interesting choice to make one of these movies. And it just ends up being so forgettable and snoozing. It's just, it's, it's not 
very good whatsoever. And then the other one I have is a bit more of like, I don't hate this one, but it's frustrating because it's Power Rangers, the 2017 movie. And I think the weird thing with that movie is all the stuff that isn't Power Rangers centric is actually kind of fun. I like the cast and I like them getting together sort of like a weird breakfast club-esque like kid dramedy. I think that stuff is fun. And the moment any Power Rangers stuff comes into it, I'm just like, I don't give a single flying fuck about this. Go back to just these kids hanging out together. I like that way more, which is, I think, a weird side of a reboot where, especially for someone who I was nostalgic for Power Rangers, I grew up with that. They're morphing and they're going to become the giant powers order or whatever. I was just instantly like, oh, I don't care about this. How about, can we have those kids just having fun together? <laughs> I miss that. I, it's a weird miscalculation of reboot. That isn't terrible, but at the same time is weirdly very bad at being a reboot, despite having some good qualities to it. Yeah, I've seen all four of your picks. Um, one of them with you, uh, which is Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit. I, I agree. You know, we've said it a lot, and I'll just go ahead and agree again with Bumblebee. I think it's the best of the Transformers franchise, and I hope that if it continues past the next one, that this is kind of the route we take, make it smaller, more relatable stories and fun. And Dread, I, I, I mean, I love Dread so much. And I know it sounds silly, but my favorite thing about Dread, well, maybe not my favorite thing, but one of my favorite things is he never takes off the fucking helmet. It might be the only superhero movie ever to where the superhero wears a mask or a helmet that he, they don't take it off so you can see the actor's face. Yep. Um, he is in character the entire time, and he's awesome. To the point to where when they were announcing a new Batman, I was like, oh, please be Carl Urban. Like, I was totally on board for it. I, I think he that's a great, great movie, and Lena Headey is fantastic as the villain. Um, Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit, I, I don't even remember what happens in that movie other than that Kira Knightley's in it. Like, like, I don't remember much. I, I, I think Kenneth, if I remember right, Kenneth Branagh has a really bad die job. I like, I, I really don't remember. I think it's, he's basically the same character from Tenet where he's dying or something. I don't know. Like, honestly, with that one, who gives a shit? It's so bad and forgettable and bland. Um, and the Power Rangers, I agree. I don't think it's terrible. I think there's a lot of fun to be had, especially with the cast. I think it's probably... I don't know how to delicately put this, but it's probably one of the best examples I've seen on screen, a uh, representation of an autistic character to where they, it's not poking fun of him for it or making it overboard. He's just a functioning autistic person. I thought it was really well done. Not the best, not the worst, but I agree. The, the stuff with the teenagers is the most fun. Once they actually learn to morph or whatever the fuck, yeah, okay, whatever, great. Oh, there's Elizabeth Banks and a giant gold creature. Cool. Krispy Kreme. Oh, Krispy Kreme. Krispy Kreme, yes. Krispy Kreme, baby. <laughs> Ad placement. No affection for Shadow Recruit. I think the Jack Ryan character is one of those characters. Again, if you're going to do it, if you really insist on you're going to reboot the thing, you could just adapt the books. It's not like they really did that the first time around. Kind of like the Bond books, they started with something that was sort of close to the text and pretty quickly just started throwing them out using the titles and just the bare bones of an idea. Um, you could just always go back and tell the stories, man. You've got a spine already for the, the arc of Jack Ryan's life. It was a weird choice to bring Chris Pine in at that point and try and reboot it the way they did. And yeah, again, sociopolitically, who is Jack Ryan right now? Why are you even telling a Jack Ryan story if it's not the Cold War era? 
and what do you gain from it? What What is the audience's way into that? If you're just rebooting it to reboot it and there's no, nothing in the wind that makes sense of that, it's going to bounce right off an audience. They don't give a shit about Jack Ryan or spies or the Russia or any of that right now. I would say I, I've never saw Power Rangers. I didn't watch the Power Rangers the first time around. That's another one of those things I just missed. I was way too old for any of that. So would not have even seen the reboot to be able to judge it. Dread, which I adore. Uh, Carl Urban is awesome. I think that guy can do no wrong. He shows up. He knows exactly what he's there for. And he murders. I think in the Star Trek movies, man, whatever else they got wrong, they cast him right. Man, is he good in those films. He's perfectly cranky. I love him. Um, and his dread, it's like you said, the fact that he never takes the mask off, of course Stallone was going to take it off. He's Stallone. There was no way his ego was not going to have him take the mask off. I think what makes Urban wonderful is the fact that he understands that dread is the star of that film. I love the world, too. I think Alex Garland, its producer and ghost director of that movie, really crushed it. Like It is a great comic adaptation. And Bumblebee is, yeah, like we said earlier, Bumblebee rules, man. Haley Steinfeld is uh, not problematic, a la Shia LaBeouf. Uh, she's delightful and uh, makes that movie really, really sing because she is so charismatic and charming and sells the idea that she has a relationship with a car. And, man, that is one of the tricks of these movies is somebody has to make you believe that that thing is a thing. And she does it. Well, Drew, I know you have uh, some choices you wanted to rattle off here, so please go ahead. Sure. The good ones uh, for me, I think um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes uh, by Rupert Wyatt, I think, is a terrific example of how to take the bones of something and really lay the table for a brand new series of films. And I think the fact that that whole trilogy ended up maybe not working perfectly, but working pretty darn well. I think is a real testament to how smart they were in terms of setting that table. And they really struggled with that. They, they worked and worked and worked to try and figure that out. You know, Scott Frank almost made a movie that was kind of like this called Caesar. And uh, they just kept trying to crack the code. Uh, again, I think it also benefits from the exact moment it was made. It really caught that wave of, we wanted to see Andy Serkis play a character like this and, and see that, realization of a CG character that really carries a movie, it goes from just being a proof of concept, can you do that, to being, yes, you can do that, and you'll genuinely invest and give a shit in this character. It's They understood that character was first, that it was not just about the tech trick. That was one of the reasons to do it, but it's not what the ultimate selling point of the movie is. It's a great performance piece first and foremost and then my other one really this one is a soft reboot kind of like we've said where it's kind of a remake kind of a reboot vaguely connects to the original i really love fade alvarez's 2013 evil dead i think it is a brutally mean movie and uh as a as an evil dead fan who watched evil dead in the order in which they were released I've always been amazed by the fact that Evil Dead, the original, is like a wound that gets inflicted on you. It is this intense, horrifying experience. Then Evil Dead 2 comes out, and Evil Dead 2 is the comedy plus the horror, and it walks this line, and it's much more approachable. And Evil Dead 2 is the one that most people is their way in. Then Army of Darkness is a cartoon and, and fun, and I think set the tone for, again, another entire audience as to what Evil Dead is. What I love about the 2013 film is he went back to 
mean, terrifying Evil Dead. Saw this one at South by Southwest as well. And you want to talk about a movie that had its way with an audience that was not prepared for it. I think everybody went in expecting groovy and chainsaws flying through the air and lots of whip pans and that we're going to have a good time. And instead they get Zoe's extraordinary horror film. And it was just a nightmare. I love it. I love the fact that it goes as hard as it does and that it does not apologize for making Evil Dead terrifying again. It's all about wanting to reclaim something or reclaim your relationship with something, which is why the two bad examples here are frustrating to me. I love Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy movies. Love them. Love, love, love. Love what he was setting up for a third film in that trilogy, really more in the fact that we're never going to see it. And it doubly bugs me that the reason we're not going to see it is because Mike Mignola decided he knew better, again, his creation, that, but he decided he knew better how to bring Hellboy to life on film and took the power back, took the project away, and then went with completely different people. And I think you greatly miss Ron Perlman immediately. I think more than that, Neil Marshall, who I like, I like Neil Marshall. I don't think he's a bad writer-director, but Neil Marshall is dead wrong for the tone of Hellboy. And unfortunately, Guillermo has set a tone for Hellboy on film that now Magnolia is competing with, even though it's his creation. Those first two movies have so much personality and so much style and so much sense of a real world that has been created that this film, I think, never stood a chance and just as a pathetic screenplay, frankly, a, a bad screenplay that feels like this mishmash of elements from the comics without any real clear single story it wanted to tell, a, a truly a disaster to me and very upsetting. And I felt much the same way in 2011 when they released The Thing, the prequel slash reboot that they did for Universal. John Carpenter's film is a masterwork. And while I understand wanting to do something with it, and believe me, the idea itself is so irresistible. The monster is so irresistible, such a powerful, potent nightmare that it is kind of amazing we don't have more of them. But I think the imagination required is you, you have to really be bold. It is not bold to simply go back and show what happened at the Norwegian camp. The staging of the Norwegian camp in the Carpenter film is one of the I think one of the most amazing set pieces of horror I've ever seen because nothing happens, but he tells you the whole story of everything that did happen just by walking you through and the aftermath and what you see and the ax in the wall and the, the guy with the slit throat and the blood that stripped down. You get the whole story from the way Carpenter stages it. So spending a hundred million dollars and 95 minutes or I'm sorry, $40 million and 95 minutes to tell me the thing that I've already been told perfectly feels like a disaster of a missed opportunity to me. And especially considering that they lost their nerve and didn't even just make a physical effects creature feature, which was the whole goddamn point. I can totally see that, especially with like the thing prequel. It's a bummer because they actually shot all the practical stuff. Like there was a whole oh, practical effects team and that know, stuff and like chickened out. I know, yeah, the studio chicken out, which is a bummer, because I, I really love the look of, like, those practical things we have seen behind the scenes, and I don't think that would have made the movie necessarily good, but it would have made it at least a bit more respectful. They're like, well, at least you committed to the effects part of it, and I can yeah. respect that. But unfortunately, they weren't able to do that. And then the Hellboy one is so weird, because it's like, 
I get part of the reasoning was like, oh, Hellboy 2 didn't do as well because, I don't know, it came out right before The Dark Knight. So, of course, it wasn't going to be that huge a box office success. But um, at the same time, if you're, like, rebooting it, just feels like a weird worst of both worlds because I don't think you're going to gain any new people with this reboot anyway. And you're going to lose any of the fans who were fans of the Game Alter Tour movie. So it just feels like a weird lost pointless thing yeah a thousand percent and um i'll agree definitely also with uh evil dead i think is pretty stellar i don't probably my least favorite of the evil dead movies but still is a stellar fun little mean horror movie i agree uh has some of the great sort of like um violent deaths i've seen in a bigger uh mainstream horror movie in recent years and rise of the planet of the apes is one of the best examples of being surprised for me where like i remember when the trailers came out everyone said like oh this looks like shit Oh, this is gonna be so bad. It's not gonna work at all. Yeah. And that was such a great, like, late August surprise of a summer where it was just like, oh my god, this is way better than anyone imagined. It was such a great word of mouth movie that went around in all those apes movies for some ill with some of, like, particularly, I think the third one has a lot of problems. But I think those three movies are so respectable for, like, how they managed to reboot a franchise that already was so messy in a way I love. Like, particularly, like, the third and fourth of those apes movies have take such weird swings. <laughs> In the like from the seventies that are like so interesting yep. and make that franchise so fascinating, but they still need I think to respect that franchise and really move it forward at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely love Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, you know, Franco was standing, but I, it was definitely one of those. It was so surprising for me because I like Thomas said I when I saw the trailer, I'm like, what the fuck are we doing here? But I was also really soured because of the Tim Burton one. So I'm like, oh, yes, this is, okay, <laughs> yes. But I saw it and I'm like, oh, this is actually really smart and really telling an emotional story and you really care. And I'm a huge fan of the originals as well. So, yeah, that one was a really, really nice surprise. Um, And Evil Dead, uh, Thomas and I recently watched that together. Um, I've seen it before. I saw it at the theater and I bought it when it came out. And uh, I think that is such a brutal, brutal movie and mean movie. But in a way that I respect it, because there are some movies that are just mean and brutal for no reason. And it's like, what are you trying to tell here? Like, I don't see a point to this. A la some of the Saw movies or, you know, torture porn in general. Like, I don't really see a point in it. But Evil Dead, yeah, solid, solid movie. Gory, graphic, scary. Uh, It's just, it's really, really good. Um, And then Hellboy, I saw that at the theater. I fell asleep in the theater. Um, at Hellboy because I was good sign. Oh, I was so fucking bored, man. And it's like, I like David Harbor. I think he's a solid choice. You know, if it's not going to be Ron Perlman, I'm like, okay, David Harbor, I could see that. Um, but, but I gotta be honest. Once I saw the first publicity image and the, the way his hand looked, I was like, Oh, we're in trouble. It's not the stone hand. It looks like it's made out of metal or something like, Oh, well, this isn't good. They're already missing the point. And the thing, I'm a huge fan of the original to the point to where I even painted the poster on my front room wall. Uh, it's behind my television. I, I absolutely love the original. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I know that's like everybody's opinion of it, but it, it, it's warranted because it is a perfect paranoia sci-fi monster movie uh, with some of the still some of the greatest practical effects ever put on screen. Now, the if you want to call it a prequel, it's damn near a remake. Uh, if you watch it, all most of the yep. beats are the same. I think it is an incredible cast. I think the cast is really, really good in it. Yep. Um, 
it just really sucks that I think you kind of said it the best. We're telling a story that we don't need to be filled in. Uh, like we get it. We got the idea already. That was enough. And it was scarier. Um, it's oh, scarier. So scary. You have to fill it in. So scary. Yeah. When you got to fill in the the holes and in your own mind, you're infinitely going to come up with something scarier than they're going to show you. And then they show it to you and you're like, okay, well, all right. Oh, there's dogs. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, and as we usually do at the end of the segment, let's quickly just repeat our titles here, Adam. Okay. For my good, I had Halloween 2018 and Punisher Warzone and my bad, Transporter Refueled and Men in Black International. And then uh, my two good choices were Dread from 2012 and Bumblebee. And then my two bad were Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit and Power Rangers 2017. Uh, I had Rise of the Planet of the Apes and Evil Dead 2013 for the good ones. And I had Hellboy and The Thing. And the fact that I have to even just put dates behind them to distinguish them is part of the problem. <laughs> True. Well, that is the end of our Devil Reduce segment. Definitely send us your own. Uh, and before we uh, go ahead and end the show, and we'll be doing our picking for next week's episode, so stay tuned for that. Oh, we just wanted to thank some people. Like Chris Oliver for our intro and outro music for the show. Listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thorlally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water. That's Night with a K underscore of underscore water uh, for on Twitter for his great artwork and a link tree where you can find all the places uh, where you can support him. And uh, speaking of support, thanks to our patrons, our edgelord, as we call them, patrons on patreon.com slash dedbpod where for just $1, you get all sorts of bonus content, like you get to uh, listen to bonus reviews we do of modern movies and theaters, uh, like there should be uh, for On the Edge of Relevance is our show, where we talk about modern movies. Uh, there's one for Last Night in Soho that's out right now, and there should be one soon for Eternals, the new Marvel film, that uh, we'll put out there. And then we also uh, do polls, where you all get to pick certain things like movies we cover for the show, and uh, at the end of the year, we're going to be doing one about 2021 movies. And uh, Adam has a couple choices for yeah. good ones. You all get to vote between. Adam, which two do they get to vote on? I have what I think is the greatest video game adaptation ever made, Werewolves Within. Uh, super fun movie. Great movie. A lot of laughs. And then I also have uh, probably the... It might be my favorite post-snatch Guy Ritchie movie, uh, Wrath of Man, which is to say them. Mm, okay, I've seen both of those. Both are uh, interesting choices, I would say for sure. Um, Drew, have you seen either of those by chance? I liked both of them. I was surprised by both of them. I thought Wrath of Man was a, a really groovy little heist film, uh, well-built, and I thought Werewolves Within was uh, a lot of fun. I love both of the lead performers in that. Um, I think uh, she should be in everything. I think she's delightful, and I think uh, Sam Richardson is brutally funny and sneaky funny. Yes, for sure. So you all get to vote on that if you're the Edgelord patron for just the $1 a month there. Uh, but we also want to thank somebody who's been on the show uh, for a very long time. Thank you so much for your time. Drew, please plug yourself. What do you have to plug for people out there? Uh, I am uh, publishing newsletters. I'm no longer doing uh, website work. Uh, I really feel like I want to change the way the conversation about film criticism works. I think it is much more valuable after a film is out and we can talk about a movie together instead of me trying to tell you what you should or shouldn't go see because, frankly, that's not my job. You know what you're interested in seeing. I'd rather talk with what you thought about 
after you've made your choice. Um, so you can find me either at drewmcweeney.substack.com, which is formerly dangerous, my primary newsletter, where I do new reviews and cultural writing, and I'm in the middle of a look back at the full Bond series right now. Oh, or you can also uh, follow my other newsletter, in which I am picking up the challenge that I originally tried to do as part of a podcast called 80s All Over. Uh, I'm reviewing every single film of the 1980s in chronological order. Uh, and I'm doing it in newsletter form. So every month you get a new month from the 80s. We are up to June of 1980s, the next one that will be coming out. Um, it's five bucks a month, and you are getting so much content. It is an unbelievable download each month. Um, and some of my favorite film writing I've ever done. It's a lot of fun to do. Uh, and we're literally doing everything that played theaters in North America. 2,800 film titles by the time I'm done with this project. Please come and support that. That's at the last 80s newsletter.substack.com. And if you don't like reading, hey, I got you covered. Um, starting very soon, although I don't have an exact release date, um, you will be able to see my work on Netflix as part of a new show called Bois, produced by David Fincher and David Pryor, who is the director of The Empty Man. I believe you know who David Fincher is. Um, it is a series of video essays about film and cinema love that came out of conversations that we had that were basically just about how much we missed movies and how much we hate the idea that every film conversation is about selling you something. The best film conversations I ever have are about movies that are already out, that have already been in theaters, where we can just talk about what we thought, a lot like the one we had here tonight. So that show is coming very soon. We have our big premiere at the AFI Fest on November 13th. Uh, I'm part of that. Walter Chaw is part of that. Uh, Tony Joe and Taylor Ramis, uh, who put together every picture, a story, uh, they're part of it. Uh, it is really a great lineup, and I'm very, very proud to be part of it, and uh, that's coming soon. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad about one. Congratulations on that, uh, the Voir thing. Thank you. I think that's, that, that, that was such a, a great announcement, especially we're, we both love The Empty Man on here. Um, we recently talked oh. about it. I've known David since the early 90s when I worked at David's Video, a Laserdisc store. And Dave was one of my customers and made video content, did a lot of D, uh, Laserdisc content. And so that's how I got to know him. And just over the years, every time I've run into him, we've had these deep film nerd conversations that you just immediately fall into, like you've been talking continuously the whole time. So he directed my segment, and I love David. I'm so happy he was part of this. I think he was an essential voice in the process. Great to hear. And also, uh, I'm also happy that you're doing the, the 80s all over thing because I, I loved that podcast. I was really bummed. When Thank I you. Did. And I'm, I can't wait. I definitely want to sign up for especially that one because you doing that exposed me to so many movies I'd never heard of. That was just like, I got to track down whatever the hell this is. And I'm so glad yep. that I was able to do that. So that I'm glad you're keeping that work going. Thank you, man. Absolutely. It sounds fantastic. And yeah, again, congratulations for the Netflix thing. That's amazing. And uh, for more of our rinky-dink operation, we're not funded by Netflix over there. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we can... got the dollars. <laughs> uh, for more of our stuff, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. And uh, you can submit feedback to us there or at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And if you can't support us on the Patreon, that's fine. Uh, we would just recommend that you could maybe... Uh, help us out by buying some merchandise on the ESOT Public Store. Uh, there'll be a link in the description for that below, um, where you can buy a T-shirt or a mug or all sorts of other great stuff with our logo on it that really helps out, gets us a bit of a kickback. So we'd encourage them to do what, Adam? Don't walk away. Just buy our merch. You can leave here. 
Just buy a match. <laughs> yes. Lord Humongous recommends. He looks so great in the t-shirt. But... Uh, for individual stuff, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterbox is at Tommy. And I also do some writing at my personal blog, marianitomas.wordpress.com, and over at film-cred.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore or underscore A-D-A-M. You can also find me on Letterbox at Schwanson. That's S-E-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. But for more of us, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on ESO, why not listen to all the other great shows on there? And you can also dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed for several episodes we did even before we joined ESO. And nothing else if you can't buy our merch you can't support us on the patreon the completely free way to help us out is to uh, rate review or simply share the show around because that gets us more visibility out there in the algorithms i saw what you did christian i saw it yeah yes christian our listener yes uh shared us great job there but now it's time to end this episode and the way we end every episode is we do our picking for the next week where um adam and i each have either uh, two good picks or two bad picks we switch up on the quality for that and we assign numbers between one and ten for them and uh with a guest like drew here they get to pick a number between one and ten for our choices and that gets us um you know our good and our bad pick ultimately though keep in mind we do have something called the godfather rule where Adam and I each have a single veto in our back pocket to use um, for if we hear a good or a bad choice and we don't want to cover it, uh, we can say, actually, I'll take the cannoli. We can only do that once from now until May for our anniversary show, and they'll expire at that point. So we have those videos in our back pocket that we can potentially use for our next topic, which we're doing uh, because King Richard's coming out. We figured it would be a bad time to go back to sports movies which we haven't done for quite a while on the show, and it's a fun topic to revisit. So I'm very curious for Adam has the two good choices. I've got the two bad ones. So please, for Adam's two good choices, Drew, pick a number between one and ten. One and ten. Uh, let's pick six. Alrighty. At number seven, uh, which I'm so glad because I've been wanting to talk about this fucking guy, I have the Al Pacino starring Oliver Stone directed Any Given Sunday. Oh. Ooh. Okay. I have not seen this one, so I'm very curious. So, I'm... so theatrically. Oh, wow. Uh, but I, I'm definitely not taking the cannoli on that. I'm very curious. I have been curious for a while to see this one, so I'm definitely on board. But what was your other choice of what number? At number one, I had Field of Dreams. Oh, another one I actually have not seen. Another solid Wow. Movie. Wow. That's a good one. <laughs> wow. Yes. Wow. But now, for my two bad choices, Drew, please... A number between 1 and 10. 4. Okay. And number 3, I have one that might kind of break the rules because I don't know if it's technically a sports movie, but it stars a sports figure doing some sports things. I have uh, the masterpiece from 1985, Jim Cotta. Wow. Oh, that's an awesome shit. one. Yeah, no, nah, man. I take the cannoli on that. That's, a, <laughs> that's fucking gold. <laughs> So excited. So pumped for that. But then uh, on the other side, over at uh, number 10, I had Ed, the Matt LeBlanc baseball movie. (laughs) Oh, God. Isn't that the one with the monkey? Yes, it's an ape that plays baseball. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's what cinema was made for. (laughs) Wow. Well... That'll be a very interesting discussion next time. And on that note, thank you all for listening and uh, witnessing us. Sorry that we're uh, mediocre.
This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.